Hi there, everybody, and welcome to Jewel Case Open. Jewel Case Open. A show that's as much about memories as it is about music. Each episode will see me chatting to a guest or guests about an album or single that they associate strongly with formative memories, cherished or otherwise, either from their distant past or recent years. My first guest is Salford-based singer-songwriter Ed Thomas. Ed's been a good friend of mine for many years now, and I thought it was time to let him wax lyrical about one of his favourite records. I'll post links to his music in the show notes. So it is about time that I uh, welcome Ed to the show. So, hey, Ed. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Um, I know that we've um, spoken off air a little bit about how we're both doing, but just for the purposes um, of letting everybody else know how you're doing, how are you doing? Well, I'm I'm doing fine, considering, you know, keeping busy, yeah. uh, keeping sensible and keeping safe. How about yourself? <laughs> um, also, hopefully the same. Um, I'd like to think I'm keeping sensible anyway and keeping safe. <laughs> you know, we've got to utilise common sense. We've got to observe the rules to the best we can. And we can't do any more than that. And uh, No. Yeah. As long as we're trying, I think that's the key. <laughs> yeah. And one of the ways that we have decided to... Well, one of the ways that I've decided to, um, for now at least, spend my time is to speak to friends and people I know about albums that they uh, cherish. The most, not necessarily their favorite albums, but albums that they spent so much time with that it is impossible to think about their lives and not think um, about a particular album. So, um, for the purposes of this episode, which is the first, uh, we're going to go all the way back to May 1966 mm-hmm. for Ed. Ed, it's your album, so you go ahead and introduce it. Uh, the album I've picked to talk about is. Uh... Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, released, as you say, in May 1966, uh, produced by Brian Wilson, and uh, pretty much mostly arranged, written, recorded by by him, with a bit of uh, with a bit of assistance. But um, yeah, but yeah, j- just a uh, just a little help. So um, I guess there's not really um, anything else to do other than just to dive in and dive in and discuss this because this is an album i love too um but just to talk about my little personal experiences with it um i didn't really discover this album um until i was about maybe sort of 19 20 years old um i never really had the inclination to properly root through uh pop music history until i was about maybe 17 um, and it just took me a couple of years to get to Pet Sounds. I'd always known um, God Only Knows, and I'd always loved it because um, <laughs> it was a it was a family tradition um, in my house when I was growing up that every Christmas uh, my mum would insist that we watched um, Love Actually, the uh, Richard Curtis film. And God Only Knows is played at the end of that film. All right. And so I always knew it. And obviously I always knew, uh, wouldn't it be nice? Mm. And my parents had, um, it was like a Beach Boys uh, compilation record, but it was all of the really early stuff. You know how like there are, you know, Beatles compilation records. It's mm. like everything mm. up to 1964. This was a similar thing with Beach Boys where it was basically everything up to, you know, it was the surfing era of yes. Beach Boys. Um, so I'd always been aware of them. Um, but then, you know, I started to explore, um, you know, older sort of, uh, popular music. Uh, I got into, I got really got into the Beatles for a little while, mm. um, and other groups from around that time. But the Beach Boys always kind of remained a blind spot for me until I was about maybe 19, 20 years old. Um, but it does mean that as much as I love it, I haven't really got that much to say about it with regards to it informing my tastes afterwards it helps me helps other things make more sense mm. if you know what i mean like it consolidated um a few sort of weak spots i had like um i mean ed you'll know and anybody who's listening to this will likely know that i absolutely adore uh weezer for mm. all their oh, faults yes. i absolutely adore <laughs> weezer so and so listening to this the way that rivers cuomo writes songs suddenly made a lot more sense to me and so 
that's the relationship that I have with it. But... Well, you see, I came to Weezer after the Beach Boys and Weezer, it was a little inroad, <laughs> you know, into the first album because that that kind of alternative rock sound was not where my head was at at the time. But the more Beach Boysy harmony, bittersweet elements of it helped me get into to Weezer's music. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's strange to... Um... To hear so much of Brian Wilson in somebody else, to the point where you'd think that Rivers spent time kind of forensically studying how he wrote. Um, <laughs> I think he did. Music. So, <laughs> yeah. So, what about you? Because obviously, I, I think, um, you know, like I say, I found this when I was maybe nineteen, twenty years old, and I was already kind of my tastes were already kind of formed. Whereas, I is your, is your history with this any a little different? Well, I think it does. I think it does make a difference when an album gets you in your development. And with this one, I think it came at a pivotal time when it was in my mid-teens. I mean, I I can tell you that it was January 2002 when I first heard Pet Sounds. Um, and I was 15 at the time, uh, emotionally overwrought and discovering various parts of my identity, etc., all those cliches. Um, and one would say that that's kind of the time period that this sort of album is aimed at. So that worked out very nicely. But also, it coincided with a period where I had been opened up by someone I knew at school to, as you say, it's like the, the older, you know, more traditional popular music. Well, it's less that I've been opened up to it, more I've been reconnected with it. Because... My parents having been, my mum particularly, having been into things like the, the the Beatles and the Stones and things in the 60s, there were a lot of these tapes hanging around in the house that I would listen to when I was about six years old. And I really liked them. But obviously, as I got a bit older, it all was, you know, what was on the radio became more, more pressing. But when I, I sort of got turned around to these things again in my mid-teens. And because I was feeling a little bit more emotionally engaged with the world, I think they had a real impact. And this album in particular, something about it absolutely struck me as, as hitting somewhat deeper than, than the music I was listening to. And, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, actually, um, what was on your... What... It's, it's 2002. I'll say MP3 player. So what, what was on your MP3 player at the time that you discovered Pet Sounds? Like, was this suddenly very radically different to what you were listening to? Or did it kind of nestle in quite nicely and then form a, a big path of its own? I, it didn't nestle in uh, nicely so much as it sort of it shook me up because I didn't quite realise that popular music could do the things that, that this was doing because a lot of the very specific kind of Brian Wilson, and I don't want to call them tricks, well, techniques, uh, have not really been taken on by many people since or perhaps they've not been utilised or noticed as much as I think uh, they they perhaps could have been. You know, things like his... Uh, the bass rarely follows where the harmony of the rest of the song and the chord sequence is going. The bass is free-floating, so it gives everything a sense of space and these different harmonic shapes that it sound unusual. But also just the, the, the arrangement, the way it's a mono mix, but everything's kind of crushed together into one sound. It didn't sound like anything else, and it was very difficult to pick up what individual instruments were. It just sounded like this humming heavenly sound it sounded like a cloud more than it did a you know a, a, an assemblage um and so when given that at the time while i'd been getting back into the beatles and this obviously led me into you know looking at mojo and the the mojo top 100 list from 1995 which was already pretty old when i looked at it was a big influence on my tastes because i took that as gospel when i was a pretentious teenager um but this, they, they voted this as the number one album of all time. So obviously I was quite quick to check it out. And uh, I'm glad that I did. Um, whether it's the number one album of all time, I would not feel remotely qualified to say. I, you know, it's a, that's a purely subjective thing. Um, what I can say is there's a few albums that have had as much impact on me in the way I've approached things. But the stuff I was listening to at the time, um, 
aside from the Beatles and things, it would probably be more the what was on the radio in the early noughties. So, you know, it'd probably be things like that I really like, you know, stuff like Outcast singles or maybe Eminem. Even stuff which I'll admit I enjoyed, uh, like Limp Biscuit and things. So moving from that to something like you know, don't talk, put your head on my shoulder. So sorry to interject, but I, I also have a very, very soft spot for rolling. So um I These, they were like fun to... singles, come on. <laughs> yes. No no I, I'm I'm willing to defend Limp Biscuit right now. But sorry, you were saying about put your head on my shoulder. Well I'm just saying it's like it's uh that didn't really sound like anything. In fact it still doesn't. It's so unique and the the way that he approached arrangement and as I said the way he managed to sound into mono it's it's entirely unique, and it, it really hit me. It's just the whole album has this kind of keening, very earnest sense about it that's, you know, he called it his teenage symphony to God, which sounds somewhat pompous, but it sounds that urgent and that earnest, really. Just to ask, what was the first? What was your first exposure to this? Even because mine was God Only Knows, and I didn't mm. know that God Only Knows was on this record. Did you have a similar thing like that when you were younger with this? Like, had you always like you know before you came to listen to the album? Did you know a song anyway? Like, wouldn't it be nice or Sloop John B or God Only Knows or something like that? Do you know? I can't even remember. I probably did know them. I know I knew a lot of the, the you know, the, the typical early hits that everyone knows. Like, I get around and, you know, uh, surfing USA and things. I know I knew those, but I, I find it so difficult in my memory to, to disconnect. God only knows, wouldn't it be nice, songs like that from Pet Sounds, the album. I can't tell. I must have known them. I mean, it's not like mm. they just they just flashed back into existence. But I can't, so disassoci- I can't dissociate them in my memory. From Pet Sounds. So, uh... Do you know, when I first came to listen to Pet Sounds properly, um, just to sort of drop this in, I was surprised that Good Vibrations wasn't on it because I'd always known Good Vibrations as well. Oh, I'd known that. That was one I definitely knew, yeah. Um, That was one that I'd known independently of exploring the Beach Boys for myself. And when I came to listen to this, I was thinking, oh, oh, it's not here. And then you find out all the stuff about Smile and... Mm. you know that uh, everything that goes on afterwards but um and so... it was supposed to be got good vibrations was they ran out of time that's the only reason good vibrations isn't on this album and why it was put on smile instead oh. it was it was literally oh. basically an addendum to the sessions but it took so long to record uh that i think the record label is just getting impatient and to be honest the amount of time and the amount of sessions good vibrations so i can't really blame them because they're probably looking at it and saying, where are you going with this? That sounded fine. It's like, no, it's not right. And it was like that for about three quarters of a year. And it was like, no, for, no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, Brian. Let's just, uh, let's do this. But yeah. Um, so you find Pet Sounds and it um, it sort of changes your life in a way. And it mm-hmm. aligns your tastes to... Um, it, it realigns your taste, if anything. It Maybe yeah. it gives you taste if you yeah. know what I mean. But, um, so, how? So, where, after after you discover Pet Sounds for the first time, mm. in what way does it influence your taste? Because I've listened to albums in the past that have had a similar effect on me, and mm. the way that they've had an effect on me isn't necessarily anything to do with music at all. Mm. Um, I remember when, when I was uh, 12, 13 years old, um, I was... Uh, shown an album that um, nobody probably really remembers. Um, they'll remember the singles from it, um, but they'll they'll probably not remember the album itself, um, mm. which was uh, One Republic's first album, oh, which yes. was called Dream- which is called Dreaming Out Loud. Mm-hmm. And now I don't listen to it much anymore because um, I feel like I spun that 
spun that CD and played those iTunes MP3 files so many times that the words have lost all meaning. Like it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like just noise to me now as opposed to like picking out melodies and things. But Mm -hmm. that album made me realize that the radio wasn't the only place to go. And from there, as soon as you realize, oh, you can discover music on the internet, Mm. The, the possibilities are endless but was yours more about um things that you became weak for in the future like did you start to like, how did this inform the rest of the music that you went on to love i think thinking about it there's a certain characteristic to the feel of it more than anything else that i think it was amongst the first music that i've been exposed to that i could categorize as being haunting and given that it's so innocent and so, quote-unquote, poppy, that it has this haunting hymnal quality, uh, really, I think that opened my eyes to how music could make me feel. I think it, you know, it, it made me quite pretentious probably at the time because it kind of it raised my expectations for what I wanted popular music to give me. And that I think it did blur the lines permanently between what, you know, I think a lot of people take for granted as, as a sort of invisible disconnect between, you know, popular music and quote-unquote art music or concert music or whatever you'll call it. Um, and it's kind of, that was all blurred. It's like a kind of, I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't think that people think could just, just be pop music or just to be this and that. It's, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I could expect just as much from both, <laughs> if that makes sense. But this... Yeah, you wouldn't um, lower your standards just because it was pop music or whatever. Which, no, no. to be fair, I think is the right way to look at it because I don't, I don't know if I like the phrase "oh, good for a pop song." Mm. I don't know how I feel about that. I but... don't even know what it means. I mean, the further I've looked into things and in trying to categorize stuff like what pop is, it doesn't stop. And then you know, the more conventionally highfalutin forms of music begin. They sort of swim into each other and from both sides. You know the. Um... You'll get sort of classical musicians uh, who were absolutely obsessed with jazz and popular music and sought to incorporate it. I mean, even going back to the 19th century, you had people like uh, Delius, who heard um, uh, Delius and Dvorak, who heard um, black music, um, and said we we're going to start incorporating that sort of harmony into our music because I think that's the way it's going to go, and they're quite prescient in that regard. Um, but yeah, I I think there isn't a really a cut off as, as far as I can see, and I think it's not even helpful to 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 um to to think of one because I think the one end of, of quote unquote concert music or classical music or whatever you'll have it, it's very very accessible. It's very easy to understand. It's very poppy, and then at the you know. Overlapping with that, at the other end of quote-unquote popular music, you have stuff that's really can be very difficult and challenging and theoretical in the same way that, you know, well, you know where I'm coming from here, I think. Um, so where, so once, um, once Pet Sounds is kind of in your nervous system, I don't know if you can uh, track the trajectory because I can kind of track my trajectory with certain records and, um, less so well with others. Like I, I'm very much into, um, you know, heavy, heavier styles of music, uh, like, uh, like post-hardcore, mm. uh, metalcore, things like that. But none of that really none of that really starts if I don't discover bands like Elliot Minor and Paramore when I'm 14, you know? Mm, mm. So in in your kind of context, what are the Elliot Minor and Paramore of, you know, are the, do the Beach Boys play that role? Like, do the Beach Boys send you down a path uh, into sort of like heartfelt neo well, heartfelt psychedelic pop or 
because um, I know we've talked a little bit in the past that you're a fan of things like um, Odyssey and Oracle, you know, oh, like yes. zombies. And so is it, does that come from your affection to pet sounds or do you feel like, do you feel, do you feel differently? I think, well, yes, I think my looking for these things was certainly informed by it, but it was more like a, a need to find another pet sounds really, which I, I haven't actually, because I think it's, it's really a one-off and it's, it's probably folly to try and replicate it. But um, at the same time, I think it was probably, you know, things like Odyssey and Oracle, that Baroque pop thing, probably equally informed by my love of the Beatles, which actually is far older than my love of the Beach Boys. Their Rubber Soul, I think, is the first album I ever remember loving, but it didn't ever strike me in the same way as Pet Sounds did as a teenager. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, because obviously I know that we've we've talked about the Beatles in the past before, and it seems Mm. like you're interest in the Beatles I mean I think everybody's kind of raised on the Beatles in a way that they're not with the Beach Boys you know so why because I mean I there there are some Beatles albums I do still prefer to uh, Pet Sounds um, things like Revolver Magical Mystery Tour that that sort of thing maybe Rubber Soul would fight it out with Pet Sounds Mm -hmm. but what is it about because obviously there are these age-old debates about who the best band ever is, and I think it's mm. always the Beatles up against the Rolling Stones, and like maybe the Beach Boys get involved in this kind mm. of conversation on the fringes, but they never really... You know, the, I don't think anybody could seriously say that the Beach Boys were the best album of best band of all time without somebody going, oh, but what about? You know, whereas if you say the Beatles are the best band of all time, those dissenting voices don't tend to be as loud. So... What is? I mean, I'm not not really saying that like you uh, booked a trend with this or anything because I don't think many people our age would consider the Beatles to be their favorite group. No. Um, but if you were listening to the Beatles around that time, do you think it was something to do with maybe like your age that meant you connected with Pet Sounds a little bit more? Or I think it's there's something about the the emotionality of it. It's the yearning more than anything. It, as I say, it's the more the feel of it that 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 really influenced me. Because it did, um, there's an aspect to the way it's arranged, so there's an aspect to the way, say, Brian Wilson sings, that is so on the verge of... Uh, I remember one of my friends uh, way back in the day in Glasgow said, it's like he always sounds like he's on the verge of breaking down into tears, but he never does. I was just about to say, he does sound like he's about to cry quite mm. a lot of the time. And I think in a, for a 15-year-old, when you're like discovering, you know... All of a sudden, you're you're taken aback by people around you, and you 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 know you feel really, you know, knocked out by by people, and you can't really work out why, and you don't know you know you don't know the difference between infatuation and love, and all these things are swimming around, and you you know in your your own self-absorbed like emotional world of of, of angst and 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 sort of dreamy possibilities as well. It is it is that crossover point between you know childhood and you know, taking your steps into into the lives of others, really, and um, and I think it is. I think there is certainly something to the fact that I discovered this when I was when I was fifteen. You know, going on sixteen, that um, it hit me at a certain time, and um, yeah. <laughs> That is a trend I'm going to try and spot, actually, as this series goes on, to see what age people were when they discovered the albums that they talk about. Mm-hmm. Because I think my, you know, if I were to ever do this and be on the other side of the mic, um, mine would likely be something from around that exact same point in my life as well. Just on 15, on the cusp of turning 16. I did just wonder. Just about to finish high school. I did wonder. Um, I think it's uh, just that point where you get what you think is the, uh, you know... Sort of like you know when when you hit sixteen and you finish your GCSEs and stuff, that's the mm-hmm. longest time you spend away from education between the ages of like four and eighteen. And it's, yeah. I think there's a, there's a real sense of uh, freedom and optimism to it, you know. And I just I, I just wonder if it's just you know that the music that we either discover at that time or associate mostly with that time is that the one that we enjoy talking about the most. And I'm I'm curious to see whether this kind of trend carries on where like you know if i speak to a couple more people are they going to be talking to me about albums that they discovered as they finished high school or is Mm. it something a bit later um maybe it's something that their um a significant other or spouse showed to them or 
uh, a mother or father when they were very very young or like a best friend in high school or primary school you know it's going to be yeah it'll be interesting very, to very, see yeah mm, i agree um so, so obviously there are lots of great songs on this record and i feel like i'm gonna ask you to choose between 13 children now um <laughs> but what would you say is your favorite song from the record because there are so many even as someone who doesn't love this as much as you mm. there are so many high points on here that it's hard to you know because if you mention that sloop john b is your favorite song why isn't it wouldn't it be nice then why isn't it that's not me then why isn't it god only knows you know that sort of thing yeah but, but you say i'm not i i can see the flaws with the record i mean you know it's not it's not all consistently good i i like it all but I'm not. I'm under no illusion that kind of you know that all things are not equal on Pet Sounds, <laughs> which is why um, there are some advo- yeah. ad- some albums that probably could you could objectively say are more consistent, more solid albums, more consistent, more solid statements. Because you know things like I'll be quite honest, Pet Sounds, I like it. The as in the instrumental track. Yes, towards but the end. Yeah. It's, it is dated more than a lot of the other things on here. And I think I remember describing it once as sounding like it, it, the soundtrack to some sort of magic routine involving animals. <laughs> like someone coaxing them across because it's got that sort of kitschy, exotica sound. It's a bit like, ah, it doesn't really, it doesn't really hit where the rest of the album does. But, you know, even stuff like that said, even stuff like Sloop John B, which is wasn't really meant to be on the album but is so solidly rendered even given it's you know relatively i hate using this term but lightweight subject matter and lightweight source is so thickly realized that it sounds really important anyway even though it's just a song about sailors getting drunk but i would but to get back i'm wondering too far off what you actually asked but if i there is there are clear favorites on here because, um, I mean, there are about, you know, 10 or 11 tracks on here that I think are just wonderful. But if I had to pick one, and I'd still say if, like, if ever there was going to be a song played at my funeral, if I wanted it to be in a sort of, you know, a, a more ponderous vein as opposed to a more humorous one, I don't know. I might I might veer towards the latter nowadays, but uh, it would be Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder, because that was... Uh, to go back to an earlier point, I mean, it was the first song I'd ever heard that actually haunted me. And I mean that quite literally. When I first heard this album, I was going off to... I was staying with my grandma for a week. Um, and I heard this album. I, I'd got the album to listen to while I was there. And I, I didn't even have an MP3 player at that point. I'll be honest, I was pretty behind the game. I had a very cheap, very knackered old Sony CD Walkman which only wouldn't rattle consistently if you held it upside down and completely flat. <laughs> and I had that for some years. But no, I would sit there almost like it's some sacred object, if you'll excuse my sort of uh, poetic license there, um, listening to, to pet sounds, uh, holding it in my hands. And um, those opening bars of Don't Talk, where that organ sort of fades in out of this slight hiss um and you've got this hymnal thing because it's it's simultaneously beautiful and resolute in its emotion while being almost unsettling in how it's got almost a gothic atmosphere to it and the combination of those things it was like it's such a simple sentiment it's asking someone to come close to you but it's delivered in a way that makes it sound like the most important thing on earth. And the opening bars of that song repeated on my head when I tried to get to sleep all week to the point of driving me to tears because I'd never heard anything quite so haunting in my life. I found it ghostly in the best possible way. And I always remember that, just lying in my bed, looking out the window at the um, the street light because the curtains didn't quite cover the window through that, just looking at the light and just having this play over and over in my head like someone was actually playing it next to my head. I've never forgotten that or the effect of those bars on me. And that's the one song. I mean, if I had to select one song, that would be it. And I think tellingly, it's the one song that I cover live. And I would not have the 
guts really to cover much else off this album. I wouldn't feel comfortable covering God Only Knows. Wouldn't feel comfortable covering Wouldn't It Be Nice. But that album, I feel, is so... I don't know. It's so tied into me that I had to do it. It's like, it was one of those no-brainer things. It's like, well, if I can't give anything new to a cover version, because I do like cover versions at least to have some different feel, but if I can't give anything new to it, at least people will know that this is... I mean every word. It's like, I... I th- this is... I feel about this song as good as if I'd written it myself because it has so much purpose for me and in the way I, I approach music. And it's such a such a bedrock to my approach to emotionality in song. Um, yeah, so that, that would be was it. That, um, was that the only album you listened to that week? Um, because obviously the limitations of CD players is that you have to take a bunch of CDs with you. It's not like we can do now with phones and MP3 players and such. Um, but I guess, like, you know, is that the only... Because I remember um, a similar kind of story from my life where um, I was stuck with a compilation CD uh, from the 1980s, and it was just an 80s compilation album. Huh. It was the first time my parents had ever gone on holiday without me, and they left me at my... Well, I say they left. That sounds really harsh. But, like, uh, my grandma looked after me for a weekend while my parents went away for the first time without me, and I listened to um, It's a Sin by Pet Shop Boys. Oh, as great I, track. <laughs> As I as I longed for them to come back, and that's yeah. the song I always remember off that CD. So, well, it's I it's guess, a classic, um, <laughs> in my estimation. And it's, but the only reason I kept listening to that is because I didn't have any other CDs to listen to. I just had this this crummy old little CD player. Oh, we've all been disc. there. I um, mean, one thing I'll say with regard to that, as a little aside, is that there is a story of me literally being left with one CD and nothing else to listen to when I brought a lot. Is that once we were. Uh, <laughs> we were on holiday somewhere and all of our stuff got nicked, including oh, no. my CD case. We got it all back in insurance. It's fine in that regard. But it left me with one CD I didn't like very much. I just bought it blind because people had recommended it to me. And it soured me on the group, I think, forever. That experience <laughs> um, It's probably why, you know, I can't hear Peter Gabriel without wanting to slap him ever so slightly. <laughs> Is that what, I was, was stuck. I was stuck with Foxtrot by Genesis oh. in the middle of, basically in the middle of nowhere. Now, I'll be honest, I, I'm not the biggest Genesis fan. I do quite like that album, but it's been a hard sell because it's so tied up with being left with nothing but Genesis. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's an aside. Um the thing is, there was another album, you've reminded me, that I got the week I got Pet Sounds. I got two, just in case, you know, that wasn't enough. Uh, I got All Things Must Pass by George Harrison. Because I was still oh. on the tail end of my Beatles trip from the previous summer, which was my summer of discovering the Beatles and the Smiths, which both really, you know, sent me down this path. Um, but yeah, that's a fantastic album. I mean... Any other circumstances, all things must pass, would be a real, you know, have a real punch to it and a lasting impact. And it has, but as I say, I'd forgotten that I was also listening to that because Pet Sounds struck me. You know, I don't know how else to describe it. It's quite a blunt appraisal, but it did. It just it punched me in the gut and uh, the, the, the wound never healed. <laughs> Um, so, in terms of, obviously, um, the Beach Boys have a lot of records, um, I, oh, yes. you should know, because you went through all of them, I remember that uh, episode of your life where you went through oh, all yeah. of them, um, but which which one of their albums comes closest to this? Oh, that would be... In your personal estimation, which one means the most to you, other than Pet Sounds, I suppose? There's a couple, but it would probably be Today, which is seen by many people as the dry run for Pet Sounds. It's pretty much all good stuff with a terrible interview track tacked on the end to make up time. 
But it's basically the second half of the album was a ballad suite, which sort of had him looking at a lot of the the harmonic ideas and the arrangement ideas he'd, he'd used for pet sounds, but obviously without quite the the time and facility. But what is wonderful about today is that it's kind of it combines the earlier Beach Boys thing on one side with the future of the Beach Boys, and it's got some of their best stuff on it. And it's not far behind, actually. It's a wonderful, wonderful record today. Um, but there's also, in a completely different vein, as you mentioned, they have a lot of records. And I'll be quite honest, they've got a fair few which are utterly awful. And that is not something I can say for the Beatles, who, who kept it concise, and with the exception of the soundtrack that was only half theirs... <laughs> I don't think the Beatles... A yellow Submarine. Uh, yeah, I, which I don't rate even their stuff on. I think it was done in a bit of hurry anyway. But I mm. don't think they released a bad studio album or anything approaching it. I think I could easily say Beatles for Sale, I think, is possibly their weakest. It's still a good album and it's still got some great stuff on it. But the Beach Boys have released some dead, dreadful albums in their time. <laughs> and so I think that's partly the reason to go off a little bit of a tangent where they're perhaps not regarded in the same, even now, as a whole entity with as much general reverence as the Beatles, that they don't have the discography for it. Mm, it's a little bit truncated. Yeah, there are about, I'd say, four four or five Beatles, uh, Beach Boys albums that I would say are classics. And compared to the Beatles, and given the length of the Beach Boys' career in comparison, it's a little bit more scant. But I would say Wild Honey, and this is, again, illustrates another reason why I think they're not regarded in quite the same, you know, light, is they, after Pet Sounds, when everything went to pot and Brian Wilson's mental health declined, they released a group of albums that were very small, very short but very warm albums they're absolutely lovely but they don't strike you over the head as anything of massive quote-unquote import they're just lovely little sound worlds that do their own little thing and they're little songs they're almost on the verge of being sketches but they just have such a lovely atmosphere to them and one of those is wild honey which is their quote-unquote r&b album and the whole thing is underpinned with this lovely, warm, kind of barrel house piano sound. And the songs are all great, but they're all really modest. And it's about 25 minutes long. But I would say those late 60s albums are so sweet that they're really... Some people like them more than Pet Sounds because they do what they do with such earnestness and such a lack of pretension that they, in their own way, are like quiet classics. But they're not going to ever get the critical critical talk that Pet Sounds does. Because it's such a monolith. I don't think Smile will ever get the talk that, that Pet Sounds does. I mean, in part because I don't think it's finished. Even now, I think... I don't think it was finished. And I think it sounds like it wasn't finished. And I think, to be quite honest, there are some amazing parts on Smile. But I think there are parts that are odd or self-indulgent, or just pointless. <laughs> and it's quite sketchy. But that's... I feel like the version of Smile we have, the Smile sessions that were mm. released about 10 years ago, I feel like that was just everything that they had available, which yeah. means that all of the all of the stuff that would have been left on the cutting room floor back mm. in the 60s means that we, just, we get all of it. It would be like being given an album plus a B, plus like a, a like a, It'd be like giving, being given a double album Mm-mm. where you have enough... It, it, it's basically um, like all of the 30, 40 second sketches that could have become something but never did just get left on the record because they wanted everything. It's true. And, I, I get the impression, yeah. though, that he was... With the actual single disc, or I think it was the double disc version, there was a genuine attempt to actually make it the album as Brian Wilson would have realised it. And it resembles the track listing that he did for his own solo version, which is actually very good which he did with mm. the Wonder Mints about... It was released in about 2004, I think, which is a really good record. And he gives... He's, he's, he's older in his voice, but he gives a great performance, Brian Wilson, on that, bringing the material to life. But I get the impression... Don't ask me why. I get the impression that 
he can't put himself in the headspace, which makes perfect sense that he was in in 1966 and 1967 to work out where he was going with a lot of this stuff. And so a lot of the little additions he made to try and quote-unquote finish the album, and it was released as a, as a finished album, like finally the opus has been finished. Mm. Um, they, they don't add that much, or they just sound like little novelty bits or a little bit added on the end of Good Vibrations, and it, it doesn't sound very much like it's, you know, the sketches that have been that have been tweaked, but I think the I think there are fundamental flaws to 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 smile. I think it was too ambitious. He literally wanted to do everything with an album. There's a season suite. There's a suite about like the rise and fall of civilization. There's a song about eating vegetables and a little song suite about healthy living. It's it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> it goes so all over the place. It, and then, oh yeah, and of course, the first bit is, is like the American experience in four songs or something. And I mean, some of the songs on it are brilliant. You've got Heroes and Villains and Cabin Essence and Surf's Up, which is one of the greatest songs ever written, I think. But you say you've also got stuff like um, I Want to Be Around and, and stuff, which are just like bizarre little novelty snippets. And I'm like, well, what does it mean? <laughs> what, does this add up to anything? I don't know. Well, yeah, I was I was going to say an album that I think we know, uh, mm. at least in your head, adds, adds up to something uh, wonderful and cohesive is uh, Pet Sounds. And I'm, I, I didn't realise, um, I don't think you've ever told me before about that first trip uh, to your grandma's house. Um, no, maybe and not. the experience you had with uh, Don't Talk. Um, mm. But I guess, you know, you've had this in your life for so long, um, this record, and I guess it's been around you the most and you've probably listened to it more than any other record. Would I, mm. would I say I'm right about that? Yeah, it's always in the background for me. It's always there. <laughs> um, do you have, would you consider that that memory, would you consider that to be a happy memory? I consider it, I don't I see it as like a crux point. Um, it's... I, it's so odd. It's kind of bittersweet, which is rather like the vibe of the album, I think, where it's both things. There's something wrenching about it. There's something that I found quite painful about how hard it had hit me. And I couldn't... It, that was a definite Brooks point, that specific week at the end of January 2002. I couldn't ever hear the music I was familiar with quite the same again because my expectations had changed. And I realised that in the best possible way, music could hurt me. I know that sounds strange, but it's like hmm. it could have such a profound effect that it it's painful. And it created a yearning in me um, that I think it, it probably just matched how I was feeling about the world anyway. You know, reaching out and, and, and you know, feeling deeper emotional experiences involving other people. But at the same time, I channeled it into the way I approach music that I guess I've always looked for that level of personality and emotional engagement in other popular music, um, which, if I can mail out an excuse, is probably why a lot of my solo stuff is so mid-tempo and whiny. <laughs> it, is the, it is the influence of Pet it's Sounds. not mid-tempo and whiny. <laughs> <laughs> it's slow tempo and uh, uh, ponderous. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> no but it's um, just basically if it comes off that way it is i think it's the ghost it's the ghost of pet sounds lingering over me and probably without even realizing it, it's why i've i just instinctively started to to use a falsetto in my music because i brian wilson in particular just made me notice how what a poignant emphatic tool it could be in music and not just a novelty i mean people you know, they were a huge band at the time and they were great. And Frankie Valley was a great singer, but the Four Seasons never used their vocal skills in the same way. They never had that cutting edge of emotional urgency to them. Uh, and that's not to say anything against Frankie Valley, who was a magnificent singer. But, you know, there are ways of using a falsetto. And Brian Wilson's was never decorative. It's wonderfully searing 
Um, so a lot of my memories that I would associate with the records, I you know, like I say, if I was on the other side of the um, sort of on the other side of the table um, with this kind of show, um, a lot of my memories, weirdly, even though none of my friends um, shared similar tastes to me, um, I would always associate my albums that I was into with my friends. Mm. Um, I don't have any memories of myself dancing at house parties um, with friends of mine listening to records I cherish the most. They're always mm. a bit more intimate than that. Yeah. Um, but with Pet Sounds, did you feel like, um, like obviously as you were growing older um, and you were, I think as we grow a little older, um, the people that we start to hang around with are more sort of aligned to our either political beliefs or our interests and hobbies and the way that we look at the world and things like that. And did you find that as you went forward in life, did you find anybody who felt about pet sounds the way that you do, or at least, you know, close, you know, or, or would be happy to talk about it at length with you for 40 odd, 50 minutes at a time? Yeah. I mean, there are people I, I introduced it them to it and pleasingly they they found it very you know potent as well which is quite nice i mean some people don't i mean you know it's just not their their cup of tea but that's almost what makes it a bit more special because it's not it's not going to be for everyone it is a very specific form of music some people like something perhaps a bit you know if they're going for the 60s stuff they might want something a bit rockier or a bit more you know it's like it's on the it's on the other end of the equation from something like the Velvet Underground, which was to some degrees contemporaneous, who were fantastic, but that's a very different vibe. I mean, that could be described as quote unquote cool, in the way that Pet mm. Sounds has never been cool. <laughs> it's not a cool record, totally but it doesn't matter. <laughs> but in its own way, it's like it's because it's like this precious thing that's kind of handed. Feels like it's handed around between people. It has that sort of sense that if it does strike you, it strikes you all the more powerfully because of it. Um, it's interesting that you mention uh, Velvet Underground because obviously the record that I think that if you're 15, 16 years old and you're first getting into um, Velvet Underground, the album that you would probably go for straight away is um, self-titled with uh, Nico. Oh, I. Um, with the you know with the banana one, that one. Yeah. Uh, the Andy Warhol one, you mm-hmm. know the one. Um, and I get the sense that that record is, I mean, I love that record. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it is aloof in a way that this one absolutely is not. It's a, it's got posturing to it. It is deliberately, it's got deliberate distance. And I mean, part of that is just the drugs. I'll be quite honest. I mean, (laughs) there's a song called heroin where he sounds thoroughly unengaged with the fact that he's on hard drugs. And I mean, that says it all. I mean, that's. This was within. This was released within months of Pet Sounds. I mean, what a different world it is. And as I say, it's great and it has its sweet little pop moments. But it's always, as always with Lou Reed, it was done with this knowing distance. It's all very stylized. Um, the one time mm. I think they perhaps went past that is with the third album, with this just the self-titled. It has a singular vibe and it sounds. Far more human, I think. Well, well, I don't think the Velvet Underground ever did anything as sweet as um, After Hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean that isn't to a degree yeah. stylized, but it's charming, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's kind it of it very, shows very all its its warts are on the surface, and it's charming for that. Um, it's it's kind of it's coming yeah, it's going going to the heart in a different way. <laughs> um, so like you know we talked about um the week that you spent with the CD um. Uh, your grandma's has it ever been a companion for you at any other time um it's, like not it doesn't have to be in the same way but just you know i think with records like this uh, you know it's probably i would expect it to be found that they will come back to you at important times or when you're not expecting them to and sometimes i mean it's one of those records that for the long time is so precious i could only play it from time to time lest i tarnish the memory I played it so much when I first got it that it's like, I never want to grow tired of this. And I never have, actually. But obviously, it's like I play it far less frequently than I used to. But when I play it again, I'm always back there, back to that time. And I think it's more, it's less that it's become associated with other things than it pins me back to a sort of a sense of, 
emotional rawness. And I think, like a lot of my favourite music, it reminds me of the emotional life inside me when it's not moderated. It's like when I'm allowed to pour out. Well, it's what it's all about for me, both, you know, just in terms of what I would seek to do in my music, which I would consider. Although I think with my music, I do like the unreliable narrative. I do. I'll say this if anyone ever listens to my stuff. It's not always me. I'll put it that way. But at the same time, the emotions are always going to be real. And I that's what I try to to do. I mean, I, I don't... I think, oddly, I think it's mostly when people have come into my life uh, and experienced it with me in one way or another, because it, it remains like a very personal experience to me. Uh, it is an intimate one. And as you say, it's not the sort of, like a lot of the albums, I think you, you will probably find with people. It's one of they're the ones that they will spend their own time with. They will, it'll be their album. It'll be like a an intimate connection. It won't be like, uh, you know, a... A house music set or something. It might be, if they have that connection with it, but it's less likely to be, I imagine. But um, I think one memory of mine is... I don't know why I was doing this, why I thought it was appropriate, but one night when I was staying back at home, years later, um, I wasn't even... I didn't have anything to drink or anything, but I thought I was in a quiet part of the house where no one could hear me. And uh, I went downstairs and I sang along to the entire album at about three in the morning. And my dad came downstairs and was like, um, that was lovely, Ed, but I do need to be up early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, I mean, goodness me, he, you know, he was very tactful about it. But I mean, I must have been, I think I was on about, uh, I wasn't made for these times. That must have been about, you know, 25 minutes down. <laughs> <laughs> because I remembered where I was standing, far from being as far away from my dad's bedroom as possible, was literally right below his head. So yeah, I mean it's not exactly got quite the same emotional content as the as the formative ones uh, that that memory, but it's a memory for sure. But it's I just was going to ask how um, how old you were then when oh, yeah twenty three okay <laughs> something like that. Um, I don't know why I was singing along with it. I just, I think I was moved by it at the time. And it's one of those albums that, and it helps with albums this length as well, that when I put it on, it is fully with the intention of listening to the whole goddamn thing. I I don't feel like I'll be doing its due if I don't listen to all of it. And yet I don't feel I need to do that very often because I feel I know every ache of the music now. And that's not to lessen the impact of listening to it, because it always sends me back more directly to that emotional place. But at the same time, I'm like, it's it's in my blood now, this. At the risk of sounding hyperbolic, it's it's a very... It's quite, it's, it's quite fundamental to me in the way I look at the world, this album. <laughs> I think I got something good going for myself, but good. Well, that's precisely why um, I brought you on and we'll bring people on in the future to talk about these kinds of records because, I mean, the reaction that you've talked about, um, that one of you going to your grandma's has really stuck in my mind because my reaction to music is never that visceral. Um, I don't tend to cry at songs or at least not like m- maybe my my idea of reacting viscerally to music is to have a physical uh, reaction to it oh, that yes. is quite strong, like crying or shouting mm. or getting upset or angry or something like that. Whereas I would consider my reactions not necessarily to be visceral, but at the same time, I do have physical reactions to music, but mine are more physical activities rather than 
manifestations of my emotions mm. if you know what i mean so it would be like if there was a song playing ask anyone who's ever sat with me while the song is playing that i know i'm always tapping on my knees oh on yeah a sofa on the arm of a sofa on a table well you know you know i do the same phone. thing really and so like but i'm thinking that you know my reaction to music never really goes beyond that mine is more of a I don't know. My emotional reaction to music is more. Is it always feels more subdued, and I don't know how comfortable I really feel. Maybe you have more of a because I maybe you have more of a cognitive reaction to it, perhaps. Maybe that's more. Yeah, maybe pronounced. Um, because it's not like music doesn't make me feel emotion, but at the moment mm. there is a big obviously because we're all bored and stuck inside. Mm. There is a big trend at the moment on social media to do these um thirty day song challenges. Oh yes, yes, I've seen. And that. one of them is like. I, 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 one of them was like a song that breaks your heart and I'm really struggling at the moment to think of a song that genuinely breaks my heart mm. and I'm and I'm not sure how it differently I mean I've gone for something that I associate a very strong memory with mm. um, uh, went for um, Farewell Fire which is the last track on Boards of Canada's third album oh, right. uh, the Campfire Head Phase um, but it doesn't break my heart. It just reminds me of an important sad memory. Hmm. And it doesn't make me feel sad anymore because the sad memory, it, it's not important anymore. It was nine years ago. It was part of, it was an era of my life that I no longer associate with and have nothing to do with and don't really have any kind hmm. of f- fondness or distaste for anymore. It's just kind of a, a bit of my life that, but listening i think that's why i've stuck to your memory because the idea of listening to something and crying is something that i've always i always feel like it's something i should do but, but it's so but it's something i've never felt capable of but the thing is it's kind of it's just i think it is probably just indicates a different aesthetic approach because everybody's you know aesthetic mm. expectations aesthetic approach to music is different as i say i'm so Pet Sounds has made me very biased in terms of my expectations, and it's an entirely subjective appraisal of music. And I do treasure emotionality in music and an emotional, what I would perceive isn't necessarily real, but what I would perceive to be an emotional sort of genuineness in music. But that's one little sliver of the experience. And it's... There are so many different ways of of being moved by music. It doesn't necessarily just have to be in the sort of... Because I'm aware talking about these things. You say talking about those memories. I'm like, I sound so melodramatic. But it did have that effect on me. Um, Maybe I can't quite quantify it in retrospect. Sort of quite, quite work out, you know, what it was specifically that triggered that connection in me. But... um, but yeah, I think it's it's very interesting that um, that it it does. I know what you mean. Some of these song challenges, it's like kind of that reminds you of a particular place or a particular. And it's like some people don't appreciate, don't think of music in that way. It's like some people will see music as reminding them of a feeling. Some people will see it as reminding them of a place. Uh, some people see it as reminding, and it, it probably is just all associated to the way that we best learn things, best memorize things. I don't know. This is hmm. conjecture. And this is, you know, <laughs> the scope of that discussion is far beyond anything I could uh, properly engage with. But um, So if you could, say if you were put in a position where you had to sell this album to someone who had never heard it before, how would you convince them to spend the full, uh, is it thought of 35, 36 minutes that this is? Yeah, it's, it's short and sweet. Um, so... Say you're coming to someone, not like an alien who's never heard music before, but say someone who's, you know, generally sort of into music and would generally kind of maybe like this anyway. How would you how would you sell it to that person? Say like say like I'd never heard Pet Sounds before. How would you sell it to me? I mean, I'd always put the I'd always put the caveat because I hate people forcing like music down. It's like, oh, you've got to hear it. It's great. I would always put the caveat as like an if. If you are looking for this. But I would say it's like if you are looking for baroque pop or the what what people would consider to be the classic 60s pop sound at its best pet sounds is like the high watermark if you want to see how 
the potential of arranging popular music, of how you can make it sound, uh, I would recommend Pet Sounds. Because, I mean, even if... Even if people do not get the same emotional engagement I do, I mean, there are lessons to be taken from it just in terms of sound design and arrangement. And I think one thing I will say, because I've not been much into the the nuts and bolts of the songs and things, and I know that's not really what this is about, but the way Brian Wilson uses harmony, I think is pretty much unparalleled in popular music. Uh, the way he structures chords, the way he has independent bass lines, and the way he uses instruments to voice them, um, I think is unmatched. If you want an example of, of the, the potential of popular of harmony in popular music, I think it's the, it's fearless. <laughs> 